Welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast, where my audio and video is still not in sync because reasons. Devin, we haven't seen you for a couple episodes now. What have you been up to, man? Uh, I don't even remember why we didn't have the last Weren't you episode. Uh, covering the, the caucus or something oh, like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. I've been around in so many places. Uh, yeah, there was um, caucuses in Iowa, uh, so I was with CBS covering some of that in the Microsoft Media Center, as they call it. and um, Yeah, what is that about, it, uh, Microsoft taking over the branding and all that stuff? Uh, it's just they, they provided a, a venue with internet, Wi-Fi, that actually worked, which I was surprised with considering all the press people there, but just a press area and a gigantic screen to see live results as they accumulate. And uh, they just, they you know, they put their branding on it because they paid for all of it. And we set up shop in there. The real fun was seeing all of the, I guess you could call it technology, that uh, was walking around the place. There was lots of people using cell phones to report with, like, microphones plugged into them and selfie sticks. And um, I guess uh, Facebook has some kind of streaming now, and so that was a big thing there. So there was... Yeah, so uh, obviously these are like more the bloggers and everything else. NBC and everyone else comes in. They bring in their lights and their gear and everything else. It's a big... It's a really big uh, production, and there was cables everywhere. Um, And then, yeah, you had these bloggers and these newspaper guys who were walking around with cell phones and, like, microphones attached to them and doing their little reports on it. And it was uh, was kind of – it was fun to see. Like, it's like, is that really going to be the future? But um, obviously I don't think so because even though those cameras may be 4K, uh, you know – lighting and framing and things like that all become important because uh, we worked pretty hard on our shot. We probably spent like a good hour and a half, two hours putting together the lights and the chairs and everything else for our shot to make sure it was a good shot. So I don't imagine that that will ever get past uh, that, but it was really fun to see. And uh, what's really interesting is that there's so many cables from everywhere because you have a bazillion satellite trucks. Uh, you have a lot <laughs> of cabling going from, well, what like where somebody is shooting to where they're going to actually uh, capture it or broadcast from it and all kinds of stuff. And the crazy part is, is that uh, most of these companies be, uh, you know, news broadcasters have to move so quickly between locations for these caucuses. They just cut all the cables or they unplug them and then take the gear and go because it's just not worth. And then wrapping new all those cables to the new location. They just buy new cables and roll them out. They buy them on reels. They roll them out, set them up. And then when they're done, they just cut them and they run uh, because it's not worth the money to clean them up. Uh, it kind of reminds me of like um, uh, like a Lord of War and stuff like that, where the U.S. military, it costs too much money to ship all the guns back. So they'll just leave them there because it's cheaper to just make new guns than to do that. And, and this is the exact same situation. So there's a bunch of cables there. I'm sure it's probably in the contract of, you know, the venue who's ever paying for the venue and using it, that there's some kind of cleanup cost where they have to clean up everyone else's cables. Uh, but there's probably something like probably a good semi, two semis worth of cables that are all just going to be cut and left there every time they pick up and leave from a location. And and that was kind of interesting to see and watch. But uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun, a lot of uh, 20 hour days, you know, sleepless, sleep, sleepless nights. You and all still that kind sound of stuff. a little uh, dazed from, from the it experience. is, you know, because, yeah, it was. And I got back here and then um, I had to fill in for somebody who's sick. So I'm doing double duty. Uh, with two studios simultaneously this weekend. So, yeah, there's not a whole lot of sleep there for me. But, uh, you know, DJ, what's been new with you? 
Uh, my my week has been a lot better. I'm working on the decision-making process for some UPS systems for some major server backups for uh, long-term video yes. storage. So uh, they bought a bunch of really expensive batteries to back this whole system up, and uh, turns out uh, VRLA, if you know anything about batteries, is not the way to go. Uh, but enough about giant industrial battery systems. I think it is probably... Time for the news. First thing on the list is actually some new lenses. Uh, this is from Samyung, the parent company that makes all kinds of stuff. You've heard of their branding between the uh, Rokinon, Samyung, and all the other brands. Uh, their cinema line of lenses uh, was not quite complete. They had an 85, a 50, and a 24 T1.5. They are now adding a 35 T1.5 and a 14 T3.1 lens to the Roundup. It looks like the price is going to set you back about uh, $2,000 per lens. They are a very nice package, and it does look like they are going to be selling them in kits on B&H. Look for those between $6,000 and $8,000 for an entire cinema lineup. Devin, what do you think of these new Samyung cinema lenses? <laughs> I'd still like to get my hands on one and really try it out. Um, <clears throat> from the tests I've seen, I still think that they are a huge bargain, even though 2000 for a manual prime lens seems like a lot, you know, when you compare it to the Canon line, of course, the, the price gap is huge and the performance seems to be pretty on par for something like the Canon, but even for renting purposes, uh, these are extremely affordable lenses and, while, you know, for personal use, I probably wouldn't end up ever buying them, uh, just because I can't justify using them that much compared to maybe just like the Rokinon Cine line, which is a couple hundred per lens. Um, it, it sounds like such a small thing, but one of the huge uh, features of these lenses is the fact that they're all identically sized. So when you're switching between lenses really quick, uh, you don't need to move your follow focus or your iris focus or anything like that. These, these all... Uh, and they kind of have the same hole at the end and the same distance from things. And so, therefore, when you're using a map box, like, you don't have to worry about it bumping into, uh, you know, your ND filters and your map box or anything like that. So Yeah, your gearing's going to um, be identical on each one of these for your follow focus, which is pretty nice, actually. Uh, but is that right, worth but spending the extra? $2,000 of nice, right. So that's why I say, like, for renting and for small indie projects and stuff like that, this is really great to see anything that can kind of hold a light up to, like, the more serious like Zeiss and Canon glass, uh, but bring it into a range where independence and uh, low budget to micro and no budget films can actually start using gear on this level. Um, I think we'll make several uh, DPs very happy. Yeah, these are about half the price roughly of Canon's cinema line of lenses. So where those are sitting in the uh, 5,000, 4,000 or so a piece range, the uh, Sammy Young lenses are quite a bit more affordable. So definitely an interesting proposition. Glad to see that they're continuing with that lineup. If you are interested, uh, lensrental.com, not a sponsor of the show, but where I often rent gear, has these on rental, uh, the rental list. So you can get those for fairly affordable. Actually, it looks like uh, about 150 bucks per lens for a week. So that's not too bad. Moving on down the line, I don't know where I was going with that uh, rambling as I read through these. Um, this this next one is actually something that's kind of near and dear to my heart and uh, something I've had to use more than once. It is 
a tablet that is capable of basically stylus interaction. If you haven't used any of these Wacom or uh, shoot, uh, the Wave, I believe is another one, uh, all of these stylus interfaces are really great for both motion graphics and for rotoscoping work if you have to do a lot of that sort of thing. And the price on this is, uh, this is going to compete with the Wacom tablets, which are somewhere, that the Cintiqs, I believe, are in the $2,000 range. And this is $799 from uh, Monoprice. Now, there are even cheaper versions of this. This Monoprice unit is a clone of the other uh, touch tablet interface setups that are available out there. Uh, but it's pretty well refined. Uh, you don't have to worry about, you know, possibly getting weird power cords and so on. And they've got it for, oh, $599 now. It's come down a bit. Man. Uh, so what <laughs> do you think? Great. A 22-inch 1080p uh, pin display tablet that uh, allows, you know, multiple points of pressure interaction. Would you go for something like this, Devin? You know, I've I've tried using a tablet a little bit, not one with a built-in screen, uh, but that would definitely be a treat. But I, I've tried it before to use like full on for editing because I've seen some guys swear by it. Um, I think for me personally, I'm kind of really dedicated to a mouse and keyboard with some programmable macros and things like that because in video editing, I use a lot of macros. And so on the flip side, in After Effects or something like that, where I'm going for rotoscoping or a lot of uh, movement trails and stuff like that, I can see where every once in a while a tablet would become uh, really useful. But in that case, then I'd go for the Monoprice tablet that's like 50 or 70 bucks that doesn't have the built-in screen for the few times where I want that kind of uh, stylus-like input to it. Uh, but in this case, this is very attractively priced. I can't figure out what kind of screen it is. I don't think it's IPS because it's uh, only got, you know, 250 um, uh, in brightness. But still, when you consider a 22-inch, that's a huge screen. I mean, like, a 23-inch monitor is pretty standard these days uh, for me. So 22 inches, I'm like, that's that gives you a lot of room. It's 1080p. Um it just seems to have everything that it really needs, DVI, HDMI input, and everything else. I, For me, it'd be a treat. I just I can't say that I'd use it enough, but I know some guys who absolutely every day, because they do enough in Illustrator, they do enough in Photoshop, uh, where they're doing touch-ups and stuff like that. The main reason why I never gravitated towards it is because they never had a lot of buttons for macros, and then I found myself constantly moving on and off my keyboard too much. And I don't know. I grew up, you know, playing video games with a mouse. So I worked I'm just with very a, an artist with my mouse. that did a really great job with this. Um, I needed some of those. Have you ever seen those uh, those deals where basically you you want something to be drawn and then it to come into existence in After Effects? So you kind of sketch it out and you're like, okay, this thing happens, and then it's sketching as you're talking about it, and then it rolls into an actual picture of the image. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked with a, an artist. His name is Amos Joseph, and uh, he has the the Cintiq tablet version of this. It's like a $3,000 unit. And he's done a number of those for me when I'm doing like motion graphics and stuff. I'm not a good hand drawing type of artist. And so I hire him for those, those things. And I told him about this and he was like, yeah, this is, I already have one on order. It's coming. I'm really excited about it. And I was like, well, what are you going to do with your, your Cintiq tablet? And he, he told me that uh, this one was going to be a secondary so he has a couple of different workstations throughout his home that he does his his drawing and sketches from. 
And this one, it's so cheap compared to his other units that he's just going to install it at one of his workstations down in the basement or up in his room. So when he's changing rooms, he doesn't have to carry because the, the Cintiq tablet, I believe, is is a complete computer all in one. So, it, you know, it's got a, a full processor, RAM, all the works, but it, it makes it very heavy. It's uh, like a right. large gaming laptop. Uh, this yeah, just is a, a monitor and interface. Now, I am concerned about the uh, parallax on this. I don't know how thick the screen glass is on these, and if you've ever used one, uh, that can be an issue. But five ninety nine is a bargain, and I'm kind of running through these pretty fast because uh, I'm trying to cut the show length down, guys. <laughs> you've uh, complained when we roll into an hour and a half, so less rambling, more going through. The next one up on the list here is actually from Olympus, and this is kind of exciting. If you remember how popular and excited people were about the five axis image stabilization from the OMD EM5 Mark II. Uh, That started out at around $1,100. That camera is now down to $727 new on the gray market on eBay. And that is an extremely affordable buy. Uh, It is 1080p, but uh, you do have that image stabilization that everybody was really excited about. Devin, now that the price has dropped, do you think we're going to see a replacement for this camera, or is this going to be the entry line on Olympus's lineup for a while to come? I feel like the Mark II has come out so recently. I feel like it hasn't, it's been, what, it's, uh, I it's think been we a need year to see. In a, a little bit more than yeah, a year. Yeah, but, but I feel like we would see a GH5 before we'd see a Mark, uh, Mark III on this camera. Um, just because I don't know, I Olympus to me isn't the kind of company that sits here and spits out cameras all the time. I don't know, man. You got range. the OMD one, you got the uh, five, the o, or the five EM five. You've got the new Pin F. Uh, you know, in the Pin F, like arguably, it's offering up some of the features that you would expect to see in the the higher end of their lineup the, the pin f has a 20 megapixel sensor and and some other interesting features that aren't available yet in their more robust so to speak line the one the five and the ten so you know I all think, of these are I starting think, along in the tooth as far as specs go yeah but i think that this has less to do with a new camera coming out and more to do with probably under anticipated sales uh, because while that video stabilization, that you know, three-axis internal stabilization, was really sweet, um, we've seen them. They've been doing updates to it too to make sure that it works properly with the image stabilization, with the lenses that are compatible uh, on this Micro Four Thirds camera. And all that being considered, I just don't think a lot of people bought it. And I think Olympus. I don't know if it was necessarily the media or Olympus, but to me, it got marketed as kind of like a video camera with internal stabilization which no one else has check this out and then the bit rate and everything else coming from the sensor it just ended up with a really soft image that none of the professionals who use mirrorless cameras for video production really then gravitated towards it because they're like oh okay so this did see I, an I upgrade don't... though wasn't it a 77 megapixel uh or um 77 meg kodak versus the like 20 or 25 meg kodak that they were offering in previous models yeah but i'm i I think overall, though, the image was still soft. I think whether or not you use the stabilization, I think there just wasn't a lot of detail. And I don't know if that comes down to how the H.264 encoding is done uh, or if that's how it's um, how it's descaling or whatever or scaling down the image sensor. So one way or another, I just I haven't met a video guy that once it came out was interested in it anymore. 
So going up to it, it kind of seemed like, oh, this could be something people could consider next to a GH4 because it's kind of priced around there, you know, considering GH4 uh, dropped so far in price and everything else. But I don't know. In terms of video guys, no one seems to care anymore. And so I think this is just Olympus responding to the fact that no one's paying attention to their camera. Now, from a strictly aesthetic point of view, how do you feel about the Olympus versus the GH4? Uh, The OMD5 and the or the EM5, man, there's so many letters in that name. Uh, the 5 <laughs> and the 10 and the 1, and now the Pin F, all of those, even though they don't have all the specs I would look for in a Micro Four camera, they look really attractive in my opinion. You, you think these are sexy cameras and they're just like uh, the hipster buy? No, yeah, yeah. I, I think, well, they're they're staying true to, you know, the uh, what everyone expects their camera to look like, whether that's good or bad. Uh, for me personally, though, the aesthetics never matter that much to me. I'm more about comfort, and most of these cameras uh, don't have the same kind of uh, surprising, amazing comfort that like the GH3 and GH4 have. Because something about a camera being so small but fitting really well in your hand, I think, is hard to do. And the only time I've come across a small camera that's fit well uh, has been like the GH3 and then the GH4 because it has the same body. Even the like Canon series, like the T2i on up, I hated the way that that grip feels. Um, as well as the stuff on Nikon was a little bit better. Would it be but better with real leather? Right. <laughs> no. No, it wouldn't be better with real leather because I don't care about that stuff. Heck, you know me. I put crap in rigs. Half the time I'm not even touching the camera. So, yeah. It's true. For stills, though, uh, you know, the attractiveness of that black on, on silver has always got me. It's one of those things <laughs> that, like, I don't need it, and I know it doesn't have what I need, but I love the look of it. And my friend TJ does uh, graphic design artist work for or graphic design work for me on a regular basis. And he was asking about cameras. And in the end, he ended up on a, a Fuji X10, I think, one of the older ones. Because number one, he's like, it's very stylish. And number two, it was on the used market for 140 bucks. And, and I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, I look kind of professional and hip when I'm wearing this camera. Like, well, I guess I never <laughs> thought about my camera as a strictly fashion accessory. Moving on down the line to some more accessories, I myself have picked up a few new lenses uh, to my Micro Four Thirds lineup, and it is now, uh, I've, I've lopsided my collection. My number of Micro Four Thirds lenses has exceeded my number of full-frame Canon lenses, uh, and that's with these two new purchases. I've got the Panasonic 15mm F1.7, which is a very sharp, wide, and very nice-feeling lens, as well as the Olympus 8mm F1.8. And I know uh, I, I threw these in because these are both lenses that Devin has been jonesing for. Uh, <laughs> we've actually been sharing images back and forth, uh, taking a look at the sharpness on the 15mm F1.7. And Devin, what do you think about both these lenses? I mean, I'm using one right now actually to film this podcast. This is the 8mm F1.8 from Olympus. Uh, the 15mm, you've seen some of the shots I've gotten out of that so far. What do you think of it? I, I really like the 15, and I could actually see using the 15 for actual uh, video production. Um, the 8 is a really fun lens, and I'd love to run it around for photography purposes. Uh, but in the video world, I feel like it would just be a specialty lens for my kind of uses. skateboard videos, <laughs> music videos, uh, you know, weird perspective yeah. videos. I, I love this I don't one. know. To, to me, that's not general purpose. To me, that's, that's a specific look that belongs in a specific video, which means it's a specific lens. But uh, in terms of photography, I'd love to run around with an 8. There's so much fun I could have with that. But uh, the 15, 
um, 1.7 is, you know, fast enough for Micro Four Thirds camera, and the pricing on it isn't terrible. It's, you know, 410 or so, uh, depending on where you get it from. And so that one I'm really interested in. Uh, you know, plus I like having autofocus and stuff like that. I'm just kind of more surprised that you've like whittled down your Canon collection and now you've got a lot of micro four third stuff. And what does it feel like to, you know, like be slowly leaving that Canon camp? I haven't completely left the, the Canon lineup. I still have all my Canon primes, which is, you know, my 24 all the way through my 135, all of my L glass primes I've, I've held on to, but, uh, I have scaled back in terms of zooms. I still have my uh, Tamron uh, 24 to 70 f2.8, but I did get rid of my 24 to 105 f4. Uh, I also I've had for a long time both the 17 to 35 millimeter f2.8 and the 16 to 35 millimeter f2.8, and I just let the 17 go. I've had that for 10 plus years, so uh, it's been in my collection <laughs> quite some time. Uh, but I, I find myself shooting more and more with Micro Four Thirds. I yeah, really like the format, and now that I can get stuff like this, this ultra wide that I'm on right now, the the reason it's so convenient to shoot on the GH4 is because lenses are so freaking small, and having lenses that are are the size, you know, of of a lens cap for a full frame body just makes all the difference in the world on your back when you're carrying stuff, and it's not Absolutely. as aesthetically pleasing a lot of times as I would like out of my full frame body, but <laughs> You know, I'm the only one who notices, it seems. So no one really complains about it when I bring <laughs> Micro Four Thirds kit to a shoot and I, I get away with shooting all day and that they're happy with the results. And it's kind of made me like, well, if they don't care, well, maybe and, I shouldn't care as much. Like I told you, man, if you've got a client that uh, needs to be impressed, just throw a map box on it. Now that's that's always the rule of thumb. The other thing I've been using a ton, and uh, while we're talking about lenses, and actually one more thing to point out on the eight millimeter before we change subjects, the eight millimeter f one eight has a a uh, basically a, a focus range of up to four inches from the front of the element, so you can basically fill an entire screen with just an eyeball and a nose if you want to. And that look is is very unique. You can't get that out of much of anything else. And no. on top of that, at f one eight, it's still a quarter the size of the Olympus seven to fourteen millimeter uh, wide angle zoom. So when I just want to pack a really wide angle lens, I'll just throw this in instead of that because that is fairly substantial for a micro four thirds lens. Now the other thing I've been using, and I actually didn't grab it on this lens because I'm not paying attention, but this right here, the Metabones uh, speed booster. Now that they've added AF controls to this that are with the latest firmware update are really fairly accurate. They, they keep up with that Kepin adapter that uh, I picked up that doesn't have the focal reducer in it. This has become a really handy thing to have in my kit. And I've been carrying that around with both the 50 millimeter F one four and the 85 millimeter F 1.8, and I say I'm thinning my Canon herd, and then I'm holding up non-L <laughs> primes that I also own L versions of. Uh, but these two lenses are are fairly light; they don't really uh, weigh down the GH4 body. And you know, with the adapter, you're getting somewhere in the range of like a 60-ish uh, focal range, and then with the uh, 85, you're getting somewhere in the, like the 100-ish range, and a little bit more light into the sensor. Really good images. Although I just had to throw away a shoot, and I'm I'm gonna have to go reshoot this uh, uh, next week. 
I got some really weird purple fringing out of the 85 with the uh, with the speed booster attached to it. So I'm not sure what's going on with that. I'm going to have to pay more attention. But I shot in 4K, and then I was looking at the edges, and I was just getting this horrible purple fringing out of this lens that I haven't seen before. So I don't know if there's any kind of light bouncing around inside of there or I've, some other... I've... I've heard a few stories of that. I've heard a few people who stopped using speed boosters because of some issue with uh, internal f- refraction that was causing uh-huh. some weird fringing. Because uh, focal reducer is supposed to reduce things like the natural fringing that comes off of a lens. But I don't know for sure. And I think it really kind of maybe depends on lens to lens, depending on how the internal lens structure is designed. Yeah, and I I only had it with the 85 and not with the 50, so I'm not sure I'm going to have to do some more experiments to find out. And it might have just been the angle of the light coming in. Uh, when you add the speed booster to these lenses, especially if you forget to take off your UV filter, sometimes light will bounce around in there in such a weird way that uh, you get unexpected flaring and some other strange results. Now, the next thing on the list here is actually for you, Devin. I wanted to talk about this just briefly. Uh, Mitch and I basically discussed the a- Sony a6300, which is an awesome priced $1,000 4K uh, APS-C sensor camera. Uh, that basically well, it dishes out most of what you get out of the A7, the new current A7 lineup. What do you think about this? Are you going to buy the A6300? You know what? It It's like right on the edge. Like I, I consider it like, oh, here's a second camera that'll do 4K. It'll give me a log format. It'll do also do 120 FPS. Uh, there's all these options. But then I think uh, towards the end of it, it's like uh, it's still a like smaller camera package that doesn't have uh, all the dedicated ports I'm looking for and all the dedicated switches for manual control. And this will only exist as a B camera and it would be really difficult to use as a primary or as an A camera. So for me personally, there's a lot of great features there and I could see it maybe being uh, a great camera for maybe somebody first time who wants 4K and wants log and 120 FPS and they're willing to deal with kind of the usability headaches of having a much smaller camera format. Um, you know, and a lot of people like being able to use it with speed boosters and stuff like that. Uh, there's a lot of options about there too. battery life? Oh, dude, I imagine the battery is nothing on this. I that I mean, it's, it's things like that too, where like, ah, this is, this has a lot of great video features, but it's so far from a video camera that I almost just have to like, be like, no, Devin, this isn't going to help you. It's just going to hinder you because... Uh, I'm too worried about being able to move quickly and not having to go through a bazillion menus to set stuff up and get stuff ready. So, I, I can't imagine it's going to be any worse than the A7S as far as menus are concerned. But I, I think it's it's I'm leaning towards buying it. Um, it, it just of course price, you are because it's a camera. <laughs> yeah, thanks, man. <laughs> oh no, at that price though, I feel like this could be you know you you grab a speed booster, you uh, slap it in my Canon kit. And when I take my 5D Mark III and my 6D out for shooting, this gives me pseudo four or you know pseudo full frame look, 4K image with a speed booster and full ad- adaptability to my Canon glass. Um, a number of you guys commented when Mitch and I talked about this camera about autofocus, and I just wanted to point out that I do in fact have the A7S, and I do shoot on it regularly, and I do have native glass like this uh 24 to 70 f4 right here 
And I'm not speaking from, you know, uh, non-experience when I say that Sony's AF systems have not impressed me at all. Uh, they are pretty awful. And I know that this camera, the A6300, has some extra features in the AF lineup, but I can't imagine that it's going to outdo the new A7 lineup. So uh, unless there's something you know that I don't know, I suspect the AF is going to be not as good as what you get sure. out of the top of the line cameras. So I, I just want to put that out there. Um, I know a couple of people were pretty adamant that I didn't know what I was talking about when it comes to AF on Sony cameras. And here's my Sony camera. So, and I've, I've shot on the a seven S Mark two shot on the a seven on the original a seven S. So none of those have very good AF with, uh, the native glass and it hasn't gotten any better. No. But back to the A6300 uh, real quick. I mean, there's no... There, um, am I correct here? There's no headphone jack? Yeah, or is there some kind of like fancy adapter system? It's it's like little things like that well, that go, oh, it's just going to get in my way. So it is capable of working with the K1M system, which is that uh, smart hot shoe adapter that's available for uh, Sony cameras. So the same thing that you could use on the, oh, okay. all, of, all of the lineup, including the X10, X100, the A7 series. So... You can use that, and that gives you basically full-fledged audio features for the camera, including XLR, Phantom Power, uh, and all that stuff. So you do have that option, but that is a $600 plus dollar, yeah. uh, extra. Uh, you can find them used on eBay for under 500 if you're lucky, uh, but uh, still, that puts this into the $1,600 range, so not quite as affordable. For me, though, I don't even... I don't. I wouldn't see myself using this as audio in. This would be like a a great B camera yeah, or that's a what great I was starter yeah. camera, like you were saying. So, at a thousand dollars, though, I mean, you could afford to buy a couple of these for the price of a five D Mark III, or three of these for the price of an A seven S Mark II. So, that's a lot of value at that price range, and I can't yeah. imagine that we'll see any more cameras from Sony that don't have 4K included because it seems like they're just peppering that on every single camera that's released. Yeah, now now it's standard. Now, moving on down the line to GH4 rumors, let's talk about this for a second and then roll into some new sensor tech from Panasonic because I kind of think those two might go hand in hand. It uh, looks like the firmware mentioned on... MicroFourThirdRumors.com. They're, they're basically saying that uh, we could see a major firmware update for the GH4. And before we dive into possible GH5 rumors, Devin, what do you think they would add to the GH4 that would uh, be enough to be considered a major <laughs> firmware upgrade? Um, you know, that's interesting because I really doubt that they would give out Vlog for free because uh, it screws over the people who've already paid. So I I don't think they would do that. I think that'd be. You think a it's going to be another move. pay for pay for play firmware update? Uh, no, because I'm not sure what else they could add that uh, firmware wise would make much of a difference. I think it's probably just going to be a lot of usability fixes. Um, it it because. I don't know. I don't. I think they've already stretched the processor and the sensor as far as it goes. So I'm not expecting anything radical like new frame rates or anything like that because I feel like uh, they've done as much as they can in that part. And the only thing they can do is just kind of things like like log and other formats. Um, what about a higher bit rate uh, format for 4K? So I don't maybe think you that crank that up to oh. 200. 
200 meg. Crank that up to 200. I don't think that the processor has the power for that. I think the thing, the the actual H.264 encoder that does all that crunching, I don't think it can manage that many pixels and flow out that much data. I, I think just that the reason why that limits in place is because of either a heating problem um, or because it's just beyond the physical limitations of the chips in there. And I could be wrong, um, but I just I, I I don't see what else would be in there for them to add besides you know, just usability fixes or some kind of like fancy Wi-Fi setup that like, you know, allows the Wi-Fi to work better, do remote shooting or do live streaming to, you know, Periscope or something like that. We saw GoPro <laughs> added live streaming to Periscope, but that's something it could be like. It could literally just be some kind of little thing like that being like, hey, take your GH4 and stream to Periscope. So I, I don't know. Um, that's why I think it's just going to be a, a huge chunk of stability and usability fixes. Yeah, I, I was trying to think of what they could add to the GH4 that would just blow my mind, or, or I would even consider a huge update. And the only thing that I could think of was, you know, a, a possible uh, larger bitrate for, you know, for 4K recording because you know you have your, you have the 200 meg uh, uh, limit for 1080p. for 1080p. So if they could somehow swing that and. To me, it wouldn't be a, a CPU issue because the encoding is done after it get, goes through the image processor. So they, they could. It seems like they could. Although heating, that's true. That might be a thing. Well, I, it, the reason I understand that they've got a you know it's a dedicated encoding is the way that it works, and it's not you know it's it's tied into their what do they call their thing the Venus or something yeah, the like Venus that. Engine Nine the Venus Engine like I know that. it's like tied into that, but what I'm thinking here is that uh, the encoding chip, uh, if you give it 4K pixels, it then has to because uh, it's doing temporal compression, it has to f- like start finding groups. And if it's finding groups of pixels that are very high resolution um, because it's going all the way up to 200 megabit, that's going to be a lot more uh, effort and cycles and everything else that the encoding chip has to do in order to fit that information, where if the encoding chip is just looking for t- 100 megabit worth, it'll use lower resolution groups and therefore doesn't require as much memory in order to get that printed out in the H.264 file. So I could see that. Th- I, that's why I think they have that limitation in there is because whatever the encoder is has the physical limitation of if you give it that many pixels, it just can't go that far into detail with it because it doesn't have the memory for it. Now, what about possibly 1080p raw? No. You don't That's, think so? Well, they, they wouldn't... Uh, what? Is, is it going to do a, a, Cine D, uh, com, a compressed Cine DNG? Yeah, you could do Cinema DNG on this camera. Uh, in camera, it wouldn't be... It wouldn't be anything more taxing than what you would be putting on the 5D Mark III, uh, which has uh, arguably older ARM processor inside, and you have the bandwidth as far as recording bus goes to the to the SD card because uh, it's already capable of handling a, a 200 meg stream. So uh, raw DNG doesn't seem like it would be implausible, and that would be a feature that would revitalize the GH4. And, uh, you know, no, make people I think, really excited I about think it. it's I think it's more than 200 megabit. You think so? Um, hey, no, I don't have the facts in front of me because you're just sitting, yeah, no, 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 no. Because think about it: the the 1080p RAW out of the Pocket Cinema camera that I've used a lot um, requires requires a card that does 95 megabytes per second. Yeah, 
which is which is way above 200 megabit. Yeah, and you need that to do 1080p in the 200 megabit Kodak on the GH4. You need you, you the, need a Sandus 95 megabit. Yeah, card. exactly. And I've got okay. one right. I just I thought it was bigger than ProRes HQ because ProRes HQ is like 200 220 megabit well, a second, right? I mean, it could be possible that they did like DNG with like a one to two ratio uh, of compression. So then you it'd be like a slightly lossy raw DNG. Which, but see, but but then see, here's the thing: is that then the chip they need some kind of encoding that's going to do DNG compressed because DNG raw could be done by the five D because of the fact that it didn't require compression, so it was just laying down raw data and putting it into files. But Pan and, uh, Panasonic has access to you know basically the bare rails as far as the ARM processor in there goes, so they have a lot more control of how the CPU processes and what kind of compression and so on is going through it. So, you know, if the chip is capable of outputting raw stills at like 11 frames per second and at full you know, full sensor size, then it doesn't seem un, un, impossible <laughs> to do raw DNG. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just throwing stuff at the, right. at the wall there. But to me, if you did something like that, that would take the GH4 and people would be very excited about it again. I bet you'd see it go back up to full price or close to full price and they'd be flying off the shelves. I mean, I don't want to shoot raw. Because yeah, of course I don't want to deal with that hassle, especially a, a cinema DNG hassle. If you could give me red code where I can just drop it in and work with it, and you know have my uh, color settings follow my image all the way around, and that would be great. But raw DNG, I, I'm not a fan of. But still, I know a ton of people that would that would be a buy right there, and uh, that's much more positive than. Uh, what the uh, flat well, that, image style that <laughs> barely works on the GH4. That that would be. Um a mind-blowing upgrade if that was actually possible. That, that would, would get you all the way to 2017, which would then bring you into a brand-new sensor technology from Panasonic looking at this patent here. And I said patent the way Devin would say patent. Uh, <laughs> <He> <laughs> yeah. It's kind of interesting. Um, this is basically a method that Panasonic is developing for dumping out an oversaturated pixel so that it can continue to collect light. And if you're not familiar with the process of uh, image capturing or an image pixel sensor, once enough light has come into it, it reaches saturation. And that's when you overexpose your image on that particular portion. Uh, with this, it's able to collect that information, dump it, and continue to collect more information. And because of that, it gives you an expanded dynamic range. And we're looking at this right now. Devin, you were we were talking about this before the show, and didn't you mention you thought this was going to be used primarily for self-driving cars? Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of Panasonic's press release talks about how this technology would be very important uh, for conditions where you can't control lighting. Uh, they they specifically brought out examples from like self-driving cars being able to because a lot of um, a lot of self-driving car systems, not that this is a podcast about robotics, but uh, self-driving car systems, we've seen them started off like the Google project where they start off using, uh, oh my goodness, uh, using LiDAR or something like that. My Amazon Echo just freaked out there for a second. I'm sorry. Um, 
they, they use LIDAR, or the robots, they know they're, I'm talking about them, they're coming to life. Uh, they use like a LIDAR system to figure out where objects are, and then based on the shape of an object, uh, they would profile it as a possible pedestrian or another car or, you know, signs and stuff like that. And then they kind of came to a conclusion, a lot of car manufacturers are like, you know what, actually just a camera. If we have a really good camera with really good optics, uh, the computer can see a lot better just with visual light than necessarily LIDAR. So a lot of them are using combinations of systems. But one of the problems is then when it's nighttime, uh, cameras can't see nearly as good as people can. So a lot of that being able to identify what's a person and what's a speed limit sign and everything else becomes a whole lot harder when it's dark. Um, and you can only rely on the car's headlights so much because a lot of stuff that jumps out in front of a car is not within your headlights. Uh, so that's where they kind of, you know, have been talking about this technology. And in the show notes, you'll see like a kind of an example of the dynamic range and things like that so that it can garner a lot more detail. Things don't get blown out. Um, so if the car, if the car camera in this case is like facing the sun, um, you're not going to get huge silhouettes and, you know, a lot of bloom, you're going to like be able to see clearly defined edges of objects, which are very important for calculating, uh, distance and motion and everything else, as well as being able to have a global shutter because bouncing around on a car, uh, things like a rolling shutter is just going to make the job of identifying objects that much harder for a computer. So all that kind of stuff put together that's what they're marketing it as. They haven't necessarily talked about any plans to put in any of their consumer products, but this is a technology they're developing and they're looking at uh, going down the road. They're developing it in conjunction with Fuji. So I imagine whatever, if they start producing consumer equipment with this uh, cameras and whatnot, I imagine Fuji is going to come out with a similar line as well because uh, they're in there as well uh, helping them out. So now, I think it's really exciting stuff, uh, but they're kind of talking about like DJ's going to bring up here that it's like 2017, maybe the next when we'd see something GH5. like this. Yeah. And people are like, oh, it'll be in the GH5. And I'm like, I feel like it's a little early for that. I feel like uh, uh, there would be a tech demo before I'd say that it'd actually be out there because the images they send us, none of it is an image of an actual product. Uh, or even just an actual sensor. I haven't, I, or at least I've not found any. And there hasn't been like a tech demo being like, here's some examples of it working. Um, what I think we've been seeing is mock-ups, examples of how it will work, which is what they need in order for to secure the patent, um, as well as uh, just a few examples that probably come out of a laboratory where... Uh, you know, they may have like a 300 by 300 pixel sensor that they're just testing technology on instead of some kind of like 18 or 20 megapixel sensor that actually be in a consumer product. So, uh, you know, it's like I said, if I actually saw a tech demo or I saw like, here's an actual picture from from this sensor, uh, then I'd be like, okay, I could see this coming around in a product in a year or two. Uh, but right now everyone's really hoping they're like, yeah, put it, it'll be in the GH five. And according to rumors, GH five will be here in 20, you know, 17 or something like that. Um, I will say that if, uh, Panasonic's going to push the GH five to 2017, um, you know, then either last year or this year, they need to come out with something that at least keeps interest in the products, considering how fast Sony is dumping out products. Uh, which is unfortunate because really they should just be working on making really good products and letting that stand, you know, for a couple of years rather than, oh, we need to, you know, update and tweak it a tiny bit and re-release it every, you know, year, year and a half. Um, 
Sony sales because, have really slumped because of that. You know, they they're hammering out pretty much the same product with one upgrade, the 4K. Edition. It's it's the it's the Canon T2i, you know, all yeah. over again. Um, and and that kind of stuff, as I, I'm sure Canon has seen from their uh, their Rebel series, that that kind of thinking only gets you so far. I think it's a short term win and it's a long term loss. Um, but in any case, so we'll it'll be interesting to see what Panasonic will do. Um, once again, the rumor, which I don't know if it's really confirmed by two sources. I'm not a journalist, uh, and I don't know if, uh, the rumor mill's a journalist either. Uh, but, uh, you know, a, a firmware update in a few months would make sense to me. Uh, the timing all makes sense to me. Uh, but it'd be interesting to see what they come up with. Cause like you said, Hey, if it was something really mind blowing, like raw, uh, it would get a bunch of people to pick up their GH fours again. And that may carry them over to have a huge product launch the year after. So, I'm excited to see what they have in store. Now, while we continue to talk about the GH4, uh, let's look at this Yonic. Yonic, is that how you pronounce that? Devin? I have no idea how to pronounce it. Yeah, Don't even ask y- me. It's Y-U-N-E-E-C. I'm not going to attempt to pronounce it correctly. <laughs> so I'm going to go with Yonic. Uh, this Yonic camera uh, stouts, or basically they're saying they're selling a GH4 that has been reconditioned and shaped to be the perfect uh, image stabilized camera for both uh, flight as well as handheld use. Uh, they've got an app to go along with this as well as a nice looking uh, controller. Uh, I don't really know what to say about this, Devin, other than that they are claiming it's a GH4. And I mean, right there in the literature, yeah. you know, integrated GH4 camera with a zoom lens. Uh, this is this is a strange... I, I'm guessing this is now the zoom lens. I don't know where that comes from. I don't know if that's a Panasonic or because it has their branding on it. Cause normally there'd be, you know, reasons why you'd throw like Lumex or Zeiss on the end of a lens, even if it's not necessarily a part of that lens, if you are able to license it, cause you're using that technology, you usually do, uh, because you know, marketing, but in this case, uh, yeah, it looks like they're using a GH4 sensor from Panasonic. Uh, and all they've done is strip this sucker down so that it is just a sensor that records a few formats and it's got a gimbal that's perfectly balanced to it. Uh, but by doing that without having, you know, necessarily the screen in the back and everything else, uh, it, it probably means it uses a lot less wattage. So you can run it straight off of a, a, a copter's batteries, which would be super helpful as well as, you know, it's going to be a balanced camera. You won't have to sit here and fuddle, with uh, the gyroscopes and everything else, as well as um, just overall, it, it's going to be a nice tight package. For me, it's not necessarily worth the price because I'm willing to spend the extra money. I could see it being a package deal for some people uh, to like throw this together. I think they're, I think it's a little over a thousand or something like that. Yeah, I was looking uh, for it, the pricing on here. I'm not seeing it standing out. Last the, time I last time I saw the price, I want to say it was maybe twelve hundred. I'm not totally sure on that. Don't quote me on that. But uh, I think that includes the gimbal as well. Uh, so, because from from what I can see, it's like there's no battery. There's none of that stuff. It's like this is the lightest, smallest package you can do for this. Um, and it's kind of nice to see that it's mostly universal. That you you'd be able to you know find a way to attach this to any quadcopter. You don't have to buy theirs. Uh, though obviously you can buy it as a package deal. So 
I, I, I think it's interesting. I This makes sense to me. Uh, and to be honest, I think this would look better than the DJI camera. I don't know exactly what sensor or tech they're using in the DJI. The X5, I believe, is using uh, the same sensor that we're seeing in the GH4 as well as this E1Z cam that I'm using right now. So, But uh, what bit rate are, is the DJI pulling? Because they've got the 100 megabit 30 FPS 4K that the GH4 has in this Yanyek. Well, that's I the thing. The so DJI you can, was a lower bit rate. No, you can, if you buy the extra attachment, which is a an attachable SSD, you can write pure raw, I believe even 4K out of the Oh, really, X5. from the DJI? Yes, but it's going to cost you because you have to buy the external SSD adapter and, and all that business. Uh, internally, I think it's, it's limited to 100 meg codecs, same as the GH4. So uh, in 4K, that, that's what I remember off the top of my head. I wasn't planning on talking about it, so I'd, I'm no, just quoting from like memory there. But, and uh, I just thought of it now. All right, so... Um, but either case, uh, it's just another option for people who are on the drones. I'm still not in a position where I would buy a dedicated camera just for a drone. I'm kind of fine right now with GoPros, uh, especially, too, if you uh, throw the GoPro into medium or narrow view, you can get some really great-looking images that don't look like a drone shot. Except that uh, those features aren't available when you're shooting in 4K. No, of course not. So, you know... Uh, but it's it's one of those. It's like we ask, is that feature worth the extra money to you? And right now, I don't do enough with drones. Uh, there's a few guys out there who are dedicated. I think there was a story recently. There's more registered uh, drone pilots now than there are like uh, personal or full size aircrafts in the world. <laughs> like the registration is off the charts because uh, after Christmas, everyone got registered for their drones. Well, and the price goes up uh, here in a couple more weeks to the full price for registration before yeah that's like right $5, too so they they were enticing people to to uh do it early so uh you know it, it's it'll be interesting where that goes because obviously there's a lot of uh moral arguments and uh, uh logistical arguments when it comes to all the drones flying around but in terms of us filmmakers like i've said before with a lot of the other cool camera stuff that comes out is that it's really great for a few select things uh, but for me, it's not an everyday occurrence. If I was a drone pilot, it'd be an everyday occurrence. Uh, but since I'm not, uh, you know, things like a really good lens is something I'll use every day. Uh, quadcopters, as much fun as I have because I love RC stuff, uh, is not an everyday use for me. So I wouldn't buy a dedicated camera in any case. All right, last thing on the list here is actually this guy. Uh, if you aren't familiar with the Blackmagic Assist, it's a, a nice little recording device that's also a monitor, packs a lot of features, and it's in the sub $500 price range. As with many Blackmagic products, uh, possibly came out half-baked, I don't know for sure, but I do know that they're adding some very integral features with this 1.2 firmware update. Looks like, Devin, drumroll please, they are going to finally be able to tell you how much time is left on your SS your SD card for recording. But <laughs> It is just, it's sad that now this is expected from this company. Um, I never, I never actually, now I did actually, uh, while I was at the caucus, saw one of these in person and got to touch it and use it for the first time. Um, 
And so I didn't notice, uh, because I wasn't the one directly running it, that it doesn't show you the remaining time on the SD card. That seems like a huge oversight. I don't understand how you can ship out a product that's missing that. This reminds me of the Black Magic Pocket Cinema camera when it first came out, and it didn't come out with RAW. This one didn't come out with DNX HD, even though every other product in their lineup does have DNX HD. Uh, it's still like really reasonably priced. There's a few other things I found with it that I was kind of frustrated by. Um, for one, the there's a certain usability aspect that's a bit off. When I was going through the menus on this, because it's all touchscreen based, I got into an area of a menu that didn't have a way to go back to the previous menu. Now, it, you know, uh, the other guys I was with, they just kind of stared at it because they were looking for a back button or something to go to a previous screen. I, I don't know. I grew up with smartphones in a way, more or less, kind of. And so I did a, like a pinch to zoom thing and it went back. But there was nothing to describe how to do that. I'm sure it was probably in the manual, but you know, how many people read through the manual fully except for DJ and me? So <laughs> it's true. DJ, that's how he spends his Saturdays. He sits on the couch and, uh, and just goes through PDFs. All I'm day. actually trying to figure out how to program the ceremonic. RX and TX10 to transmit via IR because that's how you program the receiver portion or the transmitter portion via the receiver. Uh, so that part, you know, <laughs> <laughs> to get them synced up. Yeah. Uh, sorry, and, didn't mean to get you off track. No, no, no. It's the, I'm I'm excited to see that review when it comes out too. The uh, but you know they added some extended. Um, a zebra range playback clip information panel, which I'm guessing is just like how long the clip is and stuff like that. And then another big one is actually HDMI record triggering, which would allow a lot of DSLR users of this equipment. I didn't know that was even missing. What an oversight. <laughs> well, I think uh, that I, I could kind of see them releasing without it uh, because they didn't strictly advertise it. And it's it's one of those that it's starting to become expected, but there's still a lot of portable recorders out there that don't have those options. Well, the old, the it's been out for quite some time, the Ninja 2, that was one of the, like, the key touting features is that, guess what, guys? You know, We worked with Canon, and as soon as you press record on your Canon 5D Mark III, you'll get recording via HDMI trigger on the Ninja 2. I had just assumed that this would have that because <laughs> it's supposed to be sort of competing in that same well, field. and and to be honest too, the Blackmagic Shuttle, uh, which is their like hundred fifty dollar portable SSD recorder with SDI and HDMI input, um, it actually does that as well. So oh, that's, really? So they already have it integrated, and they just didn't bother adding it into to another product, and they didn't bring it to this product yet. Lame. Yeah, I I don't get their thinking on it. I don't know why this always like I don't I I don't get why. Uh, you know, it seems like their software department's just like underdeveloped or just one guy working there being like, I'm trying to get it done in time. I don't I don't know what's going on. But uh, for people that do have it, this this will all be welcome features and upgrades uh, for it. It's still a super reasonably priced um, touchscreen 1080p. It looks really brilliant. It looks really nice. And you get both SDI and HDMI in recording to an SD card, which is nice and convenient. Um, now you got to so play I've with this, Devin. The one. question I have for you, since I haven't seen one in person yet, what does the screen look like? Is is it is it good? Is it a nice screen? Or are we talking? Yeah, like, no. I, the the blacks were the blacks were actually really good. It looked like a nice little 1080p IPS display. I don't know if it is IPS, uh, but it looked about on par with 
uh, you know, like a hundred fifty dollar, two hundred dollar monitor these days. If you were to get like a five inch, three hundred dollar monitor, so this or $200 isn't some awful TN put, type of thing where you get off to the side, and you can't even see it. No, no, the the viewing angles on it were really good, and the colors were good. I don't know how accurate it was because it's not like I was sitting there dialing it in or anything. But um, I'm, I'm I wasn't a fan of the you know Canon batteries in the back because uh, I just all my stuff is Sony MP. So, but still. Uh, the screen actually was kind of impressive. I didn't have a chance to like really like pull focus on it and really play around with it. But my first impressions was like, yeah, the blacks are good. It's nice and vibrant. And it looked to me like an IPS. And I don't know if it was, but I've, I don't know. I stared enough screens. I feel like I'd know an IPS when I see it. So Well, it says the angle of view is 135 degrees. So that's a fairly That sounds like IPS. So it's either IPS or one of the early flavors, like the VSIP or... Dang it, there's so Or OLED? Yeah, no, I don't think it's OLED. Uh, In that that size of screen, 5-inch, you think they... I don't think that... No, I'm going to go with no, it's not OLED. No. But, uh, all right. (laughs) So that's it for that. I think I am ready to get out of here, Devin, so we don't ramble too much longer. You got anything else you want to talk about before we go? Uh, No, I'm sorry. My brain's a little fried. It's been a tough week. (laughs) 